Mark chapter 9 is an interesting story. And we're going to start there and then go in a little bit of a different direction. We'll start in verse 2. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured with them. His clothes became shining, exceeding white like snow. Now, they'd been living with him and walking with him for about three years at this time. So they were used to seeing him, what he looked like. They knew what his robes looked like. They knew what his hair looked like. They knew what his voice sounded like. They'd seen him and they'd been accustomed to him. They'd known him like that from the beginning when he first approached them and said, Come and follow me. So they were familiar with him. They knew him. At least they thought they knew him. See, we we think we know certain things. And that's fine. We know them to the extent... This is going to sound silly to you. But we know them to the extent we know them. But don't don't ever imagine that that's all the knowledge that there is. That's all the knowledge you have so far. The Bible talks over and over again about things that God can do in our lives through growing in the knowledge of the Lord. And so we're here today, trusting in the Holy Spirit to take His Word, that we would grow today in the knowledge of the Lord. And so here we see the very disciples who had walked with Him for three, over three years. They still they thought they knew Him. They knew His voice. But they only knew Him to an extent. And he's about to change that. He's about to show them something that they'd never seen before. Verse 3. His clothes became shining, exceeding white like snow, as, as if, as, such as no launderer or, or laundry or dry cleaners on earth had, can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them. Now, Elijah's been gone a long time. Elijah appeared to them well, along with Moses, who'd been gone even longer. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, whoo, whoo, wow, <laughs> it's good for us to be here. Let us make three churches, tabernacles, but let us make three dwelling places, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, I don't want to get off on this, but notice what he said, let us make, let us make, let us take this experience and build it into a church. Let us make this experience, this supernatural revelation we're getting, and let us put it into buildings that we can contain so that it will stay just the way it is. Oh, this fits right in. Our human tendency is to keep things the way they are, to try to hold on to what we've got, because it gives us a sense of security because we know it's there. It also gives us a sense of control, but it's your control of your life that gets you in trouble just as it's my control that gets me in trouble. We're going to see God wants control. But God doesn't want control to hurt you. God wants control to bless you and to save you and redeem you and to do all kinds of things for you, through you, and in you. But He can't do that unless He has control. So they're trying to control this this revelation. And notice what happens when they try to control it. Look at verse 6. Because he did not know what to say, because they were greatly afraid. And these are men that have walked with him. And suddenly they see him at another dimension. They get a glimpse of what he was like before he took on flesh. John chapter 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word. That's the second person of the Godhead. The Son of the living God. The full expression of him. And verse 14 says, And that Word took on flesh and dwell among us. God, in that baby in Nazareth, took on flesh 
God became flesh and dwelt among us. But when he took on flesh, he now looked like everybody else. You understand he didn't have a little halo around his head? I know that looks nice in pictures and things like that. But if he had a little halo around his head, they all would have known growing up who he was. But his own townspeople didn't recognize who he was. Because when he came back to them to perform miracles, they said, wait a minute, wait a minute, we know this guy. We watched him grow up. This is Mary's son and Joseph's son. We know this kid. And that stopped them from receiving who he was then. See, when he was growing up, they knew him as baby Jesus. They knew him as five-year-old Jesus. They knew him as a, as, a, as a boy who didn't ever get in trouble, do anything wrong, but he was really just like every other boy because that's what they, he, they said about him when he came back to them. But there came a point when he now is anointed as the Son of God for his ministry here at 30 years of age. And when he came back to them, they didn't recognize who he was then because they weren't willing to let go of what they knew of him before. Oh, this is good. We're laying a foundation here. Now his own disciples, who think they know him better than his own townspeople did, now they see him in this moment. He's transfigured. That word means his body is changed in its form to, to, be, to be expressing the glory that he had before he came to the earth. Philippians tell us he laid that glory aside when he took on flesh. He laid aside all the brilliance and radiance of His glory and majesty that He had as the second person of the Godhead and took on flesh and dwelt among us. In John 17, when He's praying to His Father before He's about to go to the cross, He says, Father, give me back the glory that I had before I came here. So He must have laid it aside because He's asking for it back. You can't take back something you didn't have before. And you don't need to ask it back if you were carrying it around with you. When you go into a, into a fancy restaurant or something like that and they have a coat check there where you take your coat and you give them the coat and they give you this little plastic thing with a number on it, right? And now when you come back, when you're finished your meal or whatever, you hand them back the plastic ticket and they give you back the coat that was all, always yours before. It's just that you had temporarily put it aside so that you could go do what you were there to do. That's what he did with his glory. When he came to this earth to be born as a baby, he put that glory, that majesty aside temporarily. And the Spirit of God that came in him was the coat check. Oh, this is good. I've never taught this before. He was the guarantee, the coat check, that what he laid aside was still his and he was going to get it back. See, when I've left the restaurant, camera, did I, bring, did I wear a coat tonight? All I got is reaching my pocket. Oh, yeah, there's the ticket. Now I remember. Now I remember I've left the coat here. I know it. The proof I've got a coat here is that I've got this ticket. And the evidence, the guarantee, the, the, the down payment, the earnest of the, of the presence of the, of, the, of, of the glory that he had laid aside that was still his was the Spirit of God that was in him that he received in the, when he was baptized in the Jordan River. So, all right, let's pick up here. So now they're, begin, they're getting a taste, they're getting a glimpse. They're getting a glimpse of what he's really like. And they were afraid because it was beyond their experience. And therefore it was beyond their faith. Well, it's going to get more interesting. Verse 7. And a cloud came and overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my belief. They were shaken before, now they're really going to be shaken. A cloud overcomes them. And now there's a voice speaking out of heaven saying, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. By the way, he's still saying that today. 
And suddenly they looked around and they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. And now as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things they'd seen. Till the Son of Man was risen from the dead. So they had this wonderful experience, and now he's not just asking them as a favor. So this must be really important. He's commanding them. That what you've just seen, don't tell anybody. Now let's think about who that anybody includes. Because the only ones up there are Peter, James, and John. There's nine other disciples, and they've just had an incredible experience, and now he tells them, don't go tell everybody. You know, that's good advice today. When you've had an experience with the Lord, to not just go tell everybody you see, because they're not going to understand what you tell them, because they didn't see what you saw. And they'll kind of smile at you, if they're loving, and say, bless you. And if they're not loving, or they're not saved, they're going to look at you like, that you're crazy. Well, you're in good company. They thought Jesus was crazy, too. All right. Now, look at this last part. So, they, verse 10, they kept the word to themselves. Look at this. This is what we're going to talk about. Questioning, what does rising from the dead mean? What is it rising from the dead? What does the resurrection mean? They didn't understand it. And Jesus had been talking about it. Now they see him in a glimpse of what he's going to be like when he's raised from the dead. And they're trying, they're trying to wrap their mind around it. Well, you can't wrap your mind around it because it's out of this world. It's out of the realm. It's out of the possibility. It's out of the realm of experience for the human mind. And they don't understand it. Now, let's go over to Ephesians chapter 1. Paul just talks about in verse, we're not going to read there, he just talked about in verse 13 and 14 about the guarantee of our inheritance. And it's the same Holy Spirit. Just as he was the coat check for Jesus, for his resurrection, for God's promise to return that glory to him, in the same way the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit, because there's only one, the same Holy Spirit is God's guarantee. He's God's earnest money. He's God's deposit. The word actually means engagement ring. He's God's, he's the first fruit. He is God's co-check that what God's promised you to come is really yours. So if the Holy Spirit is in you, if you've got him in you, that's God's tangible proof to you that everything God's promised you to come is yours. That's a good reason to celebrate right there. Now here Paul starts praying for them. He's just talked about what God's done for them. But see, just because God's done something for you doesn't mean you got it. You see it. You understand it. You won't walk in something you don't understand. You won't walk in something you haven't seen. And so Paul's now talked about what God's done for them. He's talking about the, uh, the inheritance that they have together with all the saints. Now he's telling them, but in order for you to understand this, I've been praying that this understanding would break through to you. And that's what I've been praying too for Faith Christian Center and for me, for our families. Therefore, I also, since I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. And here's the prayer. 
that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, might give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. That's ultimately what it's about. That we might have a revelation. Now, these are people that are saved. These are people that have the Spirit in them. And He's saying what you know about God isn't enough. What you know about Him, the proof of what you know about Him is what you do with Him. Let me just ask a couple of questions. You don't need to answer them. Just answer them to yourself. What does prayer mean to you? It is that which you can't wait to get into and you're you're, you're disappointed when you have to leave that time of prayer and go do something else? Or is it an obligation that you feel you have to do so that God's pleased with you? Whichever one that is to you, and you need to be honest with yourself, it reveals what you know about Him. When you read His commandments, are you excited to find them and to obey them? Or do you see them as a heavy obligation? If you see them as a heavy obligation, that reveals what you know of Him. That doesn't mean that's what He's like. It's what you know of Him. But if you're excited to see His Word, for His Word to speak to you, to obey His Word with all your heart, if you're excited to spend time with Him and everything that interferes with that is is literally an interference in your life, then that tells you what you know of Him. I don't know about you, but I need to grow in the knowledge of the Lord. I need to grow in my knowledge of Him. I'm pleased with what I do know, but I'm not satisfied with what I do know. So Paul was praying for them, that they would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Second thing, that's the first thing. Second thing, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you're going to know three things. Number one, what is the hope of His calling? What is the hope of His calling? We live in a world without hope. Much of it. Suicide is growing among teenagers. Why? They have no hope. They look at the world and what their elders and, their, and, the, and the government and, and the people that are supposed to know what they're doing, they look at them fighting, confused, having no answers, and it says there's no hope. There's no purpose for my life. There's no hope. But the church is full of people without hope. Just living from, you're just living from day to day. You're without hope. And if you're without hope, your faith doesn't mean anything because faith gives substance to things hoped for. So if you don't have a hope, your faith has nothing to give substance to. You're just trying to be in faith. But you've got to start out with hope. And he says that you would know the hope, confident assurance, that word hope means confident assurance, the hope of his calling for you that's in Christ Jesus. The hope of his calling for you that's in Christ Jesus. This is Paul's prayer. And this is a prayer I've been praying over me, my family, for years now. And I've been praying it over you. So watch out. <laughs> Second thing, that we would know, have an underst- our eyes of our understanding would be enlightened. First, that we'd know the hope of His calling. Secondly, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? What are the riches? That's a relative term. And by that, I don't mean it's nice to have a rich relative. (laughs) Rich depends on what you're used to. We've been in places in third world countries where having a bicycle makes you rich. Having a, a concrete or wooden floor makes you rich. Having solid walls makes you rich. But if you were to go visit Bill Gates or some of these shahs of Iran and all these people who own all these oil fields and things like that, 
they have a different perspective on what rich is. We're not talking about the Shah of Iran's riches. We're not talking about Bill Gates or Buffett's riches or the richest man in the world. We're not talking about his riches. We're talking about God's riches. God's riches. Paul's prayer is that they would have a revelation, a knowledge of God, of the, of, the, of the hope of their calling, of the glory of the inheritance that they have together in Christ according to the riches of His glory. According to the riches of His glory. That's how your inheritance is measured. And in all the saints, say all the saints. All the saints. A saint, you know, is not somebody that's in a stained glass window. That's a dead person. A saint, the word literally means a believer. Someone who's been set apart by God to himself. That's a believer. So if you're a believer in Christ, you're a saint. I didn't say you've acted saintly. Because God starts by positioning you somewhere and then you have the ability to act out where he puts you. You don't have to act that way for him to put you there. He puts you there so you can act like that. So he sets you apart, a saint, so that you can begin to act like a saint. Not an ink. Okay. All right. Okay. We're not there yet. We're not even at the point yet. Okay. And verse 19 is the third thing. He's praying that we have a revelation of the knowledge of three things. The hope of our calling, the glory of the riches of an inheritance in the saints, and the third thing, what is the exceeding greatness of His power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. Far above, not a little bit, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age that has come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of all who fills all in all, you all. He's talking here about the power that God released to go into that place of hell where he was and bring him alive in the place of death. In the grips of Satan, he made him alive and brought him out of that place. That's what we celebrate today. And Paul's prayer is that God would open the eyes of our understanding, that we would have an understanding of the greatness of the power that he displayed, not towards Jesus, towards us, you and me. When he raised Christ Jesus from the dead, and he doesn't stop there, and raised him far above every principality, power, and might, and every ruler. He's talking about demonic forces, including Satan. Raised him above them. And that's the same power that he's saying we would have a revelation of what the purpose of that power is for us. Now I'm going to show you here, he's not talking about when our bodies are raised from the dead. That's not what he's talking about here. Chapter 2 goes on and says, And you were dead in your sins and transgressions. And you he made to be alive together with Christ. For by grace you were saved through faith. And that gift is not your own, but it's a gift of God. So if you've come to Christ, you've been raised from the dead. Now your body hasn't yet, but your inner man has. And it's the power of the resurrection that raised Christ's body and His Spirit from the dead. That's the same power that God has put in you. 
And Paul's prayer is that God would give us an understanding of that. Go over with me to Philippians chapter 3. Because I'm going to show you Paul didn't fully understand this. Paul was seeking this. And this is what Peter, James, and John didn't understand when they came down off that mountain. They'd seen something that they'd never seen before. They had a glimpse of the power of the resurrection. They had a glimpse of God's majesty and power. Just a glimpse of it temporarily. And they're confused. They don't understand that with all the knowledge and teaching and experience with Jesus they had, they still couldn't grasp it. And I'll explain to you why a little later on. They couldn't grasp it yet. And Paul, as you read these verses we're going to read, you can see although he had an insight into it, he still was seeking it. The full revelation, the full knowledge, the full understanding of the power of the resurrection that was displayed towards us. We're going to start in verse uh, 7. And yet I count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Notice what this is all about, is knowing Jesus as his Lord. This is Paul that had had Jesus appear to him and talk to him on the road to Damascus. That's how he was saved. This is Paul that the Bible tells us Jesus appeared to him in a vision while he was in the wilderness and revealed to him the doctrine of justification by faith. He's had experiences with him. He's had visions with him. And he's still seeking to know him. And not just know him on a picture. Not just know the Jesus that walked on the earth. Had a lamb on his shoulders. Spoke tender, soft words. Which he did. But that's not where he is now. That's before he was raised from the dead. When they saw him, John saw him in a vision on the Isle of Patmos, he didn't go lay his head on his chest the way the last time he saw him in the, in, in the, in the Last Supper. He fell on his face. Why? He'd now seen the risen Lord. Not the Jesus that took on flesh. And it changed him. I count all things but loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Paul's not sitting there saying, I lost everything I had. Oh, the price I've had to pay to serve the Lord. Oh, you don't know the price I've had to pay. No. He counted everything he gave up as trash. And that's not exactly the word in the original language. But I'm not going there. That I may gain Christ. He made an exchange. He let go of everything that was of value to him. And if you read back, most of it was his resume. Most of it was his accomplishments, were his accomplishments. Most of them were, you know, the things he'd done and the things he was and the things, how people saw him and how valuable he was to people and himself. He gave all that up. He gave all that up because he made an exchange. Why did he make an exchange? So that I may gain Christ. Verse 9. And be found in him not having my own righteousness, my own pedigree, my own resume, resume, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. And here's the focus of his life. 
Here's the focus of what he was seeking. That I may know him. But that's not all. And the power of his resurrection. So apparently Paul didn't fully know it yet. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And the fellowship of his suffering. That means the sharing together of what he went through. That's the persecution. It's not sickness and disease. There's no record of Jesus being sick or being diseased except when he carried ours. But he was persecuted. He was mocked. The world didn't respect him. They ultimately rejected him. They praised him one day and a few days later they, they said crucify him. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his suffering. Look at this. This is Paul's prayer. That I may be conformed Look at it in your Bible. To his death. Paul's ambition was to be conformed to his death. Now we're going to see why in a few minutes. If by any means, verse 11, I may attain or achieve to the resurrection from the dead. Now what is that about? He says that I may know the power of his resurrection so that I may attain to the resurrection. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. There are two different words for resurrection. The first resurrection, the power of resurrection, is the word anastasis, which is the word for basically standing away from. The word in verse 11 is the only place that appears in the New Testament or the Bible. And the word is ek anastasis, or to stand out away from. So Paul, who's very careful with his words, is using two words, one that's a building on the other word, to talk about resurrection, because I believe he's talking about two different resurrections. I believe in this verse 11, he's talking about the resurrection of the dead when we get a new body, which Paul talks about in Romans 15. I mean, Romans, 1 Corinthians 15. But I believe in verse 10, when he talks about the power of the resurrection, he's talking about something that we are to know and experience right here. In the... Rotten old here and now. Not just in the good by and by. Alright. And his prayer. Now look at this. Verse 12. Not that I've already attained it. Or I'm already perfected. That means matured. But I press on that I may lay a hold of that for which Christ Jesus laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself as after. This word, these words have always encouraged me. Paul wasn't there yet. Paul was still growing. Paul was still being challenged. That I may press on, that I may lay a hold of that for which Christ Jesus laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself of having apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting that things which are behind, forgetting those things which are behind, forgetting those things which are behind, forgetting those things which are behind, I press on. Reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press towards the goal for the prize over the upward call of God that's in Christ Jesus. Then he talks to them. Therefore, let us, as many as us as are mature, have this same mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal it even to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we've already attained, let us walk by that same rule and let us, not, and let us be of the same mind. Now turn with me where I believe Jesus gives the answer to this, to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, and then John chapter 13. Jesus is preparing his disciples 
for a drastic change that's about to take place in their life. As I said a few minutes ago, they're used to walking with him for about three years plus. They've seen him. They can touch him. They hear his voice. They, hear, they, they feel his breath. They, 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 you know, they can see his deeds. It requires no faith. And now all of that's about to change. Just at the moment when they enter the city, this triumphal entry, that it seems as if everybody in Jerusalem recognizing who he is, and they're praising him, and they're saying, Hosanna to God in the highest. Blessed be he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're laying down palm leaves and every other kind of leaf they can find, and they're rejoicing him, and the disciples have gotten filled up with this sense of victory, this sense of triumph, and says, finally, everybody's beginning to recognize what we've seen, who he is, and they're rejoicing. But before they could see the reality of that, they had to go through something that they, he'd been trying to prepare them for, but they never caught it. And often that's what God does with us. About the time you think the victory's in your clutch, you think you're somewhere, all of a sudden everything turns upside down. And you find out you're not where you thought you were. And things are not where you thought they were. Except God's where he said he was. He'll never leave you or forsake you. They had to go through something because if all that had been was a triumphant entry, if they had acclaimed him the king of the Jews, if they had acclaimed him the Messiah, then where would that have left you and me? Where would that have left you and me? So Jesus has to prepare them for what he has to go through because he knows the shock that it's going to be to them. But also, he has to prepare them because he wants to teach them a principle of resurrection that they don't understand yet. And that's what you and I need to know today and in the day and age in which we live. John chapter 12. This is the answer to what Paul was talking about. This is the answer to his prayer. Because this is how resurrection life comes. This is how the resurrection life... God's. We've learned now from the Word that not only will your body be resurrected when Jesus comes back, when, when that resurrection comes, but you're, you, there is resurrection life in you now. The question is, are you walking in it? The question is, are you walking in the victory of the glory of God that's in you right now? The question is, are others experiencing that victory in your life? Or are you just barely hanging on, hoping you're going to make it? That's not resurrection life. Jesus proved to them when he came back for 40 days what resurrection life was like. No obstacle could stop him. No walls could keep him out. Now, I'm not saying you can walk through walls, but there are other walls in your life. Because the resurrection life's not in your body yet. But that resurrection life is in your spirit and it's in your soul. Therefore, no walls should be able to restrain you. No wall of fear. No wall of doubt or unbelief. No wall of discouragement or depression. No wall that the enemy can build up to restrain you and hold you back ought to be able to stop you because resurrection life walks through walls. So if there's still walls in your life that are holding you back, fear, doubt, unbelief, timidity, then you're not walking in the resurrection life that's in you yet because you haven't seen it yet. But seeing it's only the first step. What it takes to see it is what's necessary first. And that's what we're going to talk about. There's something you have to do before you put yourself in a position to see. I don't mean by faith. I mean experience. The power of that resurrection that's in you. We had a little taste of that in here yesterday in prayer. And it's just the beginning.
Alright, so Jesus is preparing you. Verse 20, John 12, verse 20. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came to worship. So they've come now to worship at the feast, at, at the feast of Passover. And there are Greeks that have come. It's a very cosmopolitan city. And these are probably Greek proselytes, Greeks who converted to Jews. I don't know whether they were or not, it doesn't say. Who came up to worship at the feast. And they came to Philip, one of his disciples, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee. And they asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Do you wish to see Jesus? Let me ask that again. Do you wish to see Jesus? All right. He's listening. And so Philip came to Andrew. So there's kind of a pecking order here. The Greeks come to Philip, because it's like children do that sometimes, you know. They know who, which one. I was the, always the oldest of five boys. And they knew who to come to to get mom to do something. I was the oldest. And they knew if there was something awkward, they would come talk to me about what, what, the right time. And that's what's going on here, I believe. Philip has this request that he wants to answer, but he doesn't feel confident on his own to go to Jesus. So he goes to Andrew. And Andrew and Philip went to Jesus. Verse 23. And here's... But Jesus answered and said to him... So he didn't give a direct answer. They said, we want to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus. See, some people today are looking to see Jesus as he was when he walked on this earth 2,000 years ago. But he's not going to show himself as he walked on the earth 2,000 years ago. He wants to show himself in a different role, in a different dimension. And this is it. This is his answer. But Jesus answered and said to them, The hour is coming that the Son of Man should be glorified. That's where his focus was. He says, No, no, don't try to look at me where I am now. What I'm about to do is be glorified. That's what you need to see. In other words, I'm about to turn my hat check in and get back the glory that I set aside before I came to the earth. That's what you need to learn be looking for now. The hour has come that the Son of Man be glorified. What he's about to say is tied into that. This is how he's going to get his glory back. Most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain or wheat. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. He's gone off on some tangent here. We're talking about being glorified. We're talking about seeing Jesus. And now he's talking about a grain of wheat? Well, first of all, that's something they could all understand in that day. It was an agricultural society. They knew what seeds were. Now, we're coming into the, we're in the, spring, coming into the springtime now when it gets exciting for some people who, who like to do that, who like to plant flowers and plant things. So some of you buy flowers already that have germinated and you stick them in the ground. But some of you will plant tomato seeds and flowers and things like that. And you take a seed because you understand a principle. So Jesus is teaching them a spiritual principle by using a natural example that they were all familiar with. But it's the spiritual principle that we need to see and learn today. Seemingly it's unrelated, but it obviously is not unrelated. This is the key to knowing him glorified. This is the key to knowing him in you glorified. Unless a grain of wheat is sown in the ground and dies, notice that, it remains by itself alone. But if it is sown, it will produce much fruit or wheat. Let's look at it this way. A grain of wheat has very little value. A lot of potential, 
But that grain by itself has very little value to that farmer. Has value, that very little value to that gardener. And if that gardener or that farmer holds on to that seed, what will happen? He will live and die with one seed and that seed will never accomplish what its destiny was. Jesus is telling them, here's what I have to do. His life, Son of God, in the flesh, was obviously very valuable. But it had a much greater value, potential. A much greater potential value than just that one solitary life. If he came to this earth, walked among us, and as many people think, he just acted out what it's like to be a good person. That's what many people think of him. We spent most of last year talking about who is Jesus. And we said that's the question that everybody's going to have to answer. Many people's opinion he was a great man. Of course, I've shared with you he doesn't give you that option because he said he was the Son of God. So either he's a liar or a fool, but he can't be a good man because a good man wouldn't be a liar or a fool. He took that option away. But see, people, some people pick and choose what he said for their own convenience. And so, so he, he, his life, if he just walked on this earth, lived it out, grew to a nice ripe old age, he could have done all kinds of good things. He could have healed many people. He raised some people from the dead. He preached good messages. He could have brought repentance. He could have done all kinds of things. And then gone to his grave, as, all the, as the Old Testament talks about all the fathers, and in their time they went to their grave to be with their fathers. And he would have been of a value. But what value would it have been to us? He would have been an historical figure that we would have looked back and smiled at and said, what a wonderful thing God did by sending His Son. What a wonderful thing God did by sending His Son. So yes, His life at that point had tremendous value. But the potential value in that life was infinitely greater. But in order to realize all of that potential of what was in his life, he had to do what looked like the opposite of what was going to produce. He had to take what he had then, the success that he had then, the ministry that he had then, the love that he had then from his followers. He had to take it all and let it go. Just as Paul had to learn. I count all things, and they were good things, as loss, so that I may get something better. And Jesus is teaching them that if I just hold on to the life that I have and hold on to you, my friends, my, my, my associates, my disciples, and all the crowd and receive all that adulation, that's going to be wonderful. But the real value of my life will never be realized. And you and I, you and I, and millions upon millions of others have been the fruit of the choice he made. And that choice was to take what he had that was of value to him, that was of value to those around him, and to do the opposite of what everything in our human nature tells us makes sense, and to, and to, to let that life go, and to yield himself to be mocked, scourged, nailed to a cross, and die. 
But he says the principle is unless, that's a big word, unless, that means there's no other way, that grain is sown into the ground and then dies. Because the seed, if it just sits in the ground, is just dead seed in dirt. But it has to die to what it was. And the the, the outer crust, I forgot what it's called, the outer crust has to break open to allow the new life that's inside of it to spring forth. And you can't see it when that first is done, but eventually if you'll keep watering it, it will begin to break above the ground. And you'll begin to see something. And now there's some hope there. See, the Bible refers to the first disciples, Christ as the first fruits. That's the blade sticking above the ground. That's the tangible proof this was real. But then there's more fruit that's come out of that one seed that's been sown. And that includes you and I and all that will come out of your life sown. So the principle here is that the value that it has is very limited and it's of very little value to God unless two things happen. In order to sow the seed, you have to let go of it. And you've got to put it into something that doesn't, may not look like it's going to yield anything. Dirt. And then you've got to water it, but then it has to die in order to become what it was made to be. I want you to get that principle because it's so important. It has to die to what it was familiar with. It has to die to what it has in order to become what God's called it to be. And that's the principle by which he's teaching them about this resurrected life. That's the key. The doorway in to the resurrection is through death. Verse 25, he now begins to explain this. He who loves his life, now he's not talking about seeds. Now he's talking about our lives. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life, that doesn't mean you've got a bad self-image. That means who considers his life of very little value compared to what God has for him. He's talking about holding on to your life because it's precious to you. Every bit of trouble we get into is because we're trying to hold on to our life. Or what, we, or what feeds our life, what pleases our life, what makes us our life more comfortable, what makes our life what we want. It's all rooted around my life. And that's exactly the work Satan did in the garden. God provided a place of tremendous blessing to the point, and they were so conscious of God and so unconscious of themselves that they didn't even notice that they weren't clothed. And Satan came. And his whole scheme was to get them to start looking at themselves and taking care of and providing for themselves instead of giving themselves to God and trusting that He was going to take care of and provide them. And the moment they did that, they disobeyed Him. Fear came in. And they looked at themselves and realized they were naked and they covered themselves. And man's been doing that ever since. But Jesus came to redeem us from that. All right. So if we, the principle of this, the principle of resurrection is that if I try to, if I love and treasure my life to the point that I want to hold on to it at His expense, then I will lose it. 
Now, how many of you believe when Jesus said, you must be born again in order to enter the kingdom of God? Most of you. How many, how many of you believe when he says, this is my commandment that you love one another, that he means that? How many of you believe that he says, go into all the world and preach the gospel? How many of you believe he said that and meant that? This is the same Jesus. This word is just as true. It is just as eternal. It is just as established as all those other words of him. Because he doesn't say one word and mean it like we do, and another word and not mean it quite as fully. He means everything he says exactly the way he says, forever and for all time. So this is just as true. If you want to lose your life, hold on to it. Preserve it. Protect it at all costs. Watch out for yourself. Get back at people that try to hurt you. Promote yourself. Exalt yourself. Self, 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 self. And you are guaranteed by the word of the living God to lose it. I I didn't write this. In my Bible, it's in red. That means Jesus said it. I, I didn't write this. He's challenging me with this. See, we live our life so many times as Christians with a mixture. We love Jesus. We love the Lord. We want Him in our life. But we also want our life. So we want this balance. I want Jesus in my life because I want Him to save me, deliver me, heal me, bless me. But I also want what I want. And what he's saying is, you've got to choose. You've got to choose. Now, the grace of God is, we still have time to choose. But we don't know when that time ends. Okay, we've got to move along. He who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world, look at this, will keep it for eternal life. Eternal life is not just living forever. Because the Bible teaches we're all going to live forever somewhere. Some of us with Him. Maybe some of us in that other place. But wherever you go, you're going to live forever. Eternal life is life at the level that God lives it. This resurrected life. So He's saying the only way to know the power of the resurrection here and in the life to come is to take your life and sow it like a seed. Now to sow a seed is intentional. It's not by emotion. It's an act of your will. I want tomatoes, so I take this tomato seed and I put it in the ground, trusting that when I water it, it's going to germinate, which is a biological word for die. It's going to germinate. The life that's in that is going to germinate. The life of God in you needs to germinate. But it can only germinate when our life, the way we like to live it, and the what we want, dies. Jesus said it another way. If we looked back in Mark 9 at the scriptures before we read, in fact, every place where this principle is taught, I find Jesus taught this example. He said, in order to be to my disciple, you must take up your cross and follow me. Now, what happened on that cross? It's a place of death. 
In order, before he could be raised from the dead, he had to die to his own life. Say, well, he's the son of God. That was easy. Well, read in Matthew his account in the Garden of Eden. It says he was in such agony over the decision to be obedient to go to that cross that he sweated, as it were, great drops of blood. And three times he had to go back and settle that resolve. This is Jesus who had never sinned, who walked in perfect fellowship with his Father, facing that agony of death, realizing what that was going to mean. Because his prayer was, not my will, but your will be done, Father. So he had a will of his own. He had to lay down. He had to lay down. Now this is not exciting to hear. Unless you understand what the promise is of the Father if you'll do it. In order to be his disciple, he said, you must. He's not saying, look, there's the upper echelon of the disciples, you know, the high level guys, the ones that walk on water and cast out demons. You know, those guys, they got to, they, they got to cross. No, he said, in order to be a disciple of mine, a follower of mine, you must pick up your cross. Your cross is not suffering and sickness and disease. People have turned that around and said, oh, I got to bear my cross. No, if they knew what the real cross was, the cross is to die to yourself. To die to your own ambitions for yourself. We live in a time when the church is filled with ambitions for ourselves. People teaching visions and dreams, and that's wonderful as long as it's God's vision and God's dream for you. And it's not your vision or your parents' vision or your spouse's vision for you, but it's God's vision for you. Because if you're a Christian, you died to who you are. You just haven't learned that. So you're, not, you're fighting against your own nature. You're trying to resurrect yourself. That's hard work. Let it die. Verse 26, If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, my father, he will honor. Our life only has value to God. I don't mean he doesn't love you. I'm not talking about that. God loves you where you are. And you have a value to him just because of your, who you are and he loved you and gave his son's life for you. But the potential value that God has for your life is infinitely beyond you. And that value will never be realized. You will live your entire life as one seed that may be pretty, may be handsome, may have all kinds of knowledge of the Word of God, may have done all kinds of things for Him, but will never reach the potential of the resurrection life that's in you right now until you take your own will, your own ambitions for what you want, and you intentionally sow them in Christ. Colossians 3.1 says, If you've been raised with Him, then keep seeking the things which are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, because you have died, 
and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Paul has just explained the doctrine of salvation by faith in Christ. And now he says, I anticipate what your issues are. People are going to say, wait a minute. If, we don't have to, if we're not saved by our works, then what are we, should we say? If we're saved by grace, he says in the beginning there, but should we continue in sin that grace may abound? He basically says, you don't understand what I'm talking about. Verse 3, or don't you know that as many as us as were baptized into Christ, that means joined to him. That word baptized doesn't mean just joint, dunked in water. It means joined to him. As many of you as were baptized into Christ were baptized or joined, united together in his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So there's a newness of life, a new life. It's this eternal life, this resurrected life. This life where, where fear doesn't stop you. Things don't stop you that would stop you before. It's a life of victory over the works of the enemy. Now your body's not redeemed, but your soul and your spirit are. Your spirit, your spirit is. You need to renew your mind. That's what we're learning on Wednesday night. So that your soul becomes renewed. Your mind. Your will and your emotions. And as you sow your life, you're doing what he did. He sowed his life. As you sow your life, you will find that you will learn to walk in His life. I've begun to taste it. Get into situations when my old way of thinking, my old way of handling things, say, that person said something about you, or they're thinking something about or whatever. This is wrong, and, and my, my flesh begins to rise up, and my mind hooks in with my flesh to figure out what we need to do to get back, or to say this, or what we need to do to stand up for myself. But I'm learning this principle. No, I've been joined to Christ. I say this almost every day. I was crucified with Him. I've been crucified with Christ. Therefore, it's no longer I who live, Galatians 2.20, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. But I'm learning to say, all right, if I'm in Christ, what would He do? Because in a number of places, Paul says, put Christ on. And I said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to protect myself. I'm not going to look out for my interest here. I'm going to put Christ on and what would he do in this situation. And the moment I make that decision of my will, see, that's sowing. I've just watered what I sowed. The moment I make that decision of my will, I begin to see things from his perspective. And I begin to feel his life in that situation. I feel his compassion, his wisdom, his power coming out of me in that situation. Because that's the resurrection life that's been in me all along. But it wasn't coming out because I was trying to live my life and handle things my way. And you can't do both. Turn with me to Ephesians 3 and we'll end there. We're coming back to where Paul started. Paul talked about praying for them, that the eyes of their understanding would be enlightened. So they would know three things, and the last was that they would know the greatness of the power, exceeding greatness of the power which towards us when he raised Christ Jesus from the dead, that resurrection power in this life now. In chapter 3 now, in verse, starting in verse 14, he's in the, the second prayer that he talks about in this book. 
For this reason I bow my knee before the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth was named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might, to be strengthened with might, to be strengthened with might, he's talking about here in this life, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that the resurrected Christ, the victorious, overcoming, powerful, loving Christ, might dwell in your hearts through faith. That being rooted and grounded in love, you may be able to comprehend and understand. What was his prayer? That they would have an understanding and knowledge of him. That you would be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge beyond what you know now. Another level of knowledge, a supernatural level of knowing him. That you may be filled Look at this. That you may be filled here, now, with all the fullness of God. Let that sink in. With all the fullness of God. Whatever you're facing in your life right now, does that intimidate God? Does that overwhelm God? Is He wringing His hands and I don't know what we're going to do? Well, if you've learned this, His fullness is in you now. But you won't know that fullness until you've done what Jesus had to do. You've taken the grain of your life and you've sown it into Him, into the kingdom of God. And look at this. Here's the encouragement. Now unto Him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all we can ask or think, according to to the power that's coming down out of heaven when Jesus comes back. That's not what it says? According to the power which He has at the right hand of the Father. No? No. According to the power that dwells in us right now. Sitting in your seat right now is that resurrection power. How come I'm not walking in it? Because you don't know it. Because you're trying to hang on to your power and your life and control of your circumstances instead of sowing it in Him, letting it go. We're going to begin to learn this year that the principle of the kingdom of heaven is sowing and reaping. It started in the garden. It was fulfilled here when Jesus sowed His life. He sowed one life and what A crop has he received back millions upon millions. God sowed one son and he's received millions upon millions of sons and daughters. Together with his first son back. I said I'd give you the answer of where the disciples came down off the mountain. Why Jesus said, don't tell anybody yet until I've been raised from the dead. It was not possible for them to come to this kind of understanding until they'd seen his life sown and the blade come up above the ground. And then they had to take their life and they had to sow it into him and into the kingdom before they could begin to appreciate and grasp that resurrected life that they had a glimpse of on that mountain. In the same way you and I will not truly see that resurrected life that is in you now until you're willing to take up your cross 
your place of death to who you are and lay your life down for Him. Because His promise, His Word says that if you hold on to it, you will lose it. You have God's Word on that. But if you give it to Him, sow it, so that you die to who you are, you will have His life, everlasting life. You have God's Word on that. Let's pray. Father, as we prepare to bring this service to an end, we thank You that You are willing to take Your own Son's life and sow it to the kingdom of God that you may yield fruit that includes us. You know each person here this morning. You know where their life is. You know the value of their life here. And you see the value of their life that you put in them. Help us to face today the truth of where we are with you. Help us to see where we're holding on to ourselves, to our ways, to our ideas, to what we want, to our ambitions. And by the power of your Spirit, give us the understanding of what your Word teaches us today, that we may purposefully, intentionally, in faith, sow our lives into you and into your kingdom. For your promises, if we'll do that, that we will receive back and you will receive back a great harvest. Your word says that the harvesters are few, labors are few, but the harvest is great. We live in a time right now where there's a desperate need for harvesters to go out and harvest the kingdom for the kingdom of God but to do that we have to sow our lives into your kingdom help us to see that to feel that and to do that in Jesus' name